You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking to Ayaz Hafiz, a programmer at rwx.com, which is a company that sells tools for programmers to make their builds and tests faster and nicer, and which has been sponsoring Ayaz to work on the Rock programming language. We roll up our metaphorical sleeves and discuss behind-the-scenes compiler details like implementing ad hoc polymorphism and defunctionalization using Lambda sets. Along the way, we discuss how these implementation details interact with the design of the language and the experience of using the language. And now, defunctionalization in a functional language. All right, Ayaz, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Richard. Okay, so something I, I've always wanted to ask you is that, like, so you came into the Rock project not having been a professional compiler author before, like you'd never gotten paid to work on a compiler, and yet you came in with like a lot of knowledge about how compilers work. In, in a lot of cases, more than more knowledge than not only me, but like uh, plenty of other people working on the compiler. So I'm kind of curious, like, if not professional experience, like, how did you learn so much about compilers, sort of, you know, uh, on your own time? Yeah, for a while. It had just been like a pretty big hobby of mine. I used to care a lot about type theory, both from like a computer science perspective and from a mathematical perspective. So I spent a lot of time studying that in my own time. And eventually I realized like the most practical application for it was in programming languages. So, uh-huh. you know, I was also studying computer science at the time and these things kind of meshed well. And it was exciting to see like, okay, here are some ideas that I can put together and like create a toy language from or a toy type system from. And I found that stuff enjoyable to do in, in the free time that I had that I could devote to other, you know, sort of academic interests besides my schoolwork. So I gained a lot of knowledge that way, I think. But I will say, like, I think when I came into Rock, I was still pretty naive in, in a lot of things. Um, and so certainly having worked on Rock for a while, I don't know what it is now, but maybe maybe a year and a half or so, has taught me a lot in, in that respect. I don't think by any stretch of the imagination, I'm someone who like knows a great deal about these things. I think I just know a little bit, and it happens to be that the, the subset that I know happens to also align with the kinds of needs that Rock needs. Nice. Okay, that makes sense. So you're just backing up. So you mentioned like being interested in type theory separately from programming. So you're talking about types in like the mathematical sense that like doesn't necessarily have any application to computer science, but as it happens, it does in the context of like compilers and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly the case. Okay, cool. So this is like like category theory or totally unrelated to category theory too? Okay, so type theory originally came up as like an alternative way to look at the like the, the underlying construction of mathematics to set theory. So if you're familiar with set theory, I don't know if you're familiar with set theory. I guess I should ask you that first. We don't have to go too deep into that. So basically, the most of math today works on the foundations of set theory, which set theory is just like, okay, I'm going to take a lot of objects and I'm going to categorize them by sets. And I'm going to use this categorization and I'll build up a bunch of like other interesting math on top of this. So So you have like the set of integers is a set, right? Exactly. Exactly. You use, use set theory as a foundation to build up more interesting math that you might be interested in. Now, one thing about set theory is that you have to take certain axioms into account. I forget how many axioms set theory, like the set theory that you, that's used today, takes, but it's not a small amount. Like It's taken into, consider, like, into consideration eight or nine axioms. And some of these axioms can lead to very strange results. Have you heard of the Bonnard-Tarski paradox? No. Okay, there's this very profound result which says that 
okay, if, if you take set theory, set theory as an axiom and you build up things like you do, um, you can come to this conclusion that you can take any object you want and there is a way to uh, like move around the atoms in that object to produce two identical objects. And by identical, I mean like truly identical. Like you can take two apples and produce two identical apples. And if you believe that that theory is true, like this is a result that pops out. Okay. Other things like this that like seem a bit counterintuitive. There's this famous phrase. I forget who said it, but actually, let me let me look this up. Yeah. So the mathematician Jerry Bona once said, "The axiom of choice is obviously true." Well, here the axiom of choice is the idea that like if I give you a room full of chairs and I say. Richard, go choose a chair. It doesn't matter which chair you choose. Like, I, it's enough for me to know that you can choose a chair. Okay, so we can okay. take this as obviously true. Then he says, okay, so he says, the axiom of choice is obviously true. The well-ordering principle is obviously false. And who can tell about Zorn's lemma? So the well-ordering principle is like another one of these things. The idea is that you can well-order any sets of a certain quality. The one thing that it means is you can well-order the real numbers, which hmm. is also a bit surprising, right? Like, that means you can take any fractional number and determine its ordering relative to another one. But like, how do uh, I that order? That doesn't sound like, surprising to me, but I don't know. <laughs> As, uh, maybe that's just because I'm like too much of a mathematical novice <laughs> to know any better. Well, I guess like, you know, how, how would I order like 0.11111 repeating? And then like, there's a two at the end versus like, if I shift that to one or two spaces over and then change the numbers that come after that, I think some of it might be unintuitive. Okay, I, I'm okay, going okay. off a tangent here. But I'll, I'll take anyway, your word if, for it. <laughs> yeah. If, if you construct things from the set theory perspective, there can be some things that, from like an intuitive perspective, might seem very strange. Okay. Like some mathematicians don't like this, and they want to deal with things from a constructive perspective. And type theory started as a foundation for mathematics that deals with things from the constructive, like from a constructive angle, rather than from, from the angle where you just assume a bunch of these axioms and build things up. And by constructive, I mean something that I think is directly applicable to the world that we, we work in as, you know, as software engineers, right? For example, if, if I ask you to give me a value of a certain type, you can't just like point somewhere and say, okay, go choose that over there. You have to give me like concretely a value of that certain type. And how do you do this? You define a function, and that function goes and does something. And like it's a very explicit set of steps of how you construct that value. This is kind of the foundation that that type theory enforces. Whereas like in set theory, you can just like say, okay, we're gonna assume that this object exists. I'm not gonna explain exactly how we're gonna find it, but we're gonna like take some certain axioms and we're gonna say that axiomatically we can assume that it exists, but how exactly it's defined is not going to be, you know, we're not going to really care about this in the land of type theory and software engineering and computer science in general, right? Like, you have to very explicitly define everything that you do. And this is part of the reason that type systems themselves are built off of type theories, is because they enable this kind of very discrete construction and explicitness of where values come from and, you know, what their types are. Okay. So like the steps by which you end up concluding that something has a particular type. I mean, I guess that's like kind of exactly what type inference is doing is it's like you have like, I know this fact about this thing. I know this other fact about this thing. And then as you're going along, you build up or I guess uh, not even necessarily type inference. It could also just be, I guess it would have to be type inference. Hmm. 
I don't know. Is that is that a, is that a reasonable analogy? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, the principle is roughly the same. You can just imagine it as like a good basis for a way to construct proofs by some definition of what you want to classify a proof as. But like, let's say in, in our case, like what it means for a value to have a certain type. Like, if I want to prove that, I don't know, let, let's say for example, I have I have some C, like record record in my in my SQL database, and it consists of you know, a string and and a number. Well, how do I prove that like this record in that SQL database is actually a string and a number? I have to say, oh, well, here's the value that consists of it. And I know it's a string and you know, here's a number that that consists in it. It's like actually a number. Both of these are physical values. Like they live somewhere in, you know, on the hard disk that that backs the database. And you have these sort of like concrete things that you can use to build up these these higher order ideas like oh this whole sql record has a certain type this reminds me a little bit like the set theory and type theory in math kind of reminds me of like paradigms in programming like you have like object oriented and functional and and uh, logic and all of them are able to result in like a cpu executing instructions and doing stuff with memory but they're kind of like fundamentally different ways of looking at maybe the same you know end result that you're trying to get out of the computer some of them are better suited to some applications than others. Like logic programming, if you're trying to make a game using Prolog, I imagine that's like a really weird, difficult thing to do because it's not really designed to be good at that. And I guess maybe similarly, if, if my analogy holds, <laughs> maybe there are some things that are really awkward to do in set theory in math and like a lot easier to do in type theory because it's just a more natural fit for the problem. Is that fair or way off base? Yeah, that, that's, that's absolutely the case. Yeah. Cool. You know, like I think most things, you know, in life, there's no, there's no like concrete right or wrong answer. You know, j- just to the point of like programming language paradigms in mathematics, it's the same thing. Actually, type theory turns out to be much harder for like certain kinds of mathematics. So, sure. I think that's part of the reason it hasn't caught on so widely in general. But yeah, that that's a great characterization. Okay, so you got interested in the math aspect, and then by the time you got to rock, I guess you'd done some like hobby toy languages you mentioned like I, I know you did some stuff with like using ocaml to build like toy languages and stuff i'm kind of curious what was like the motivation behind those languages like those sort of uh, self-directed projects where you just kind of like playing around trying to just like implement some of the things you'd read about or did you have like i want to try this out and see if it works like what was the motivation there yeah it, it was both things i mean i think for a while like i was just trying to get up to speed with all this kind of stuff you know the literature and you know the space of programming language design and, and type systems is, is very vast. Sure. It's a little bit difficult to grok all of it if you already don't have you know, if you don't have great mentorship to begin with. <laughs> Unfortunately, the like the environments I was around, I didn't I knew other people that were interested in this kind of thing, but I didn't know any professionals that yeah that worked in this space or or academics that worked in this space. So I just had to tour around a bunch myself. But over time, yeah, I I grew to like see certain ideas that I found interesting myself, and I tried to play around with them. I think one interesting thing to me is the literature of of programming language design and and type system theory is is very vast. But yeah, what you see in actual programming language implementation is a very narrow slice of all of this, and I think it's because you know the dominant languages that were around. They have to pick and choose, like from a lot of very specific feature sets in in the staff design space, and it's difficult right. to cover all of that 
And I think a big part of that is, is that familiarity is such a big deal for adoption. Like, I mean, some languages will take this to the extreme. Probably the ultimate example of this would have been CoffeeScript. But I mean, okay, that's like dynamically typed. So you're not really (laughs) much to say there from a typing perspective. But even like TypeScript, for example, obviously very, very constrained to pre-existing design considerations from JavaScript. And JavaScript itself was design constrained by Brendan Eich's mandate from his bosses at, I guess it was Netscape back then. I'm not even sure if it was Mozilla yet to make it so that JavaScript like was was Java-like uh, because Java was a big hype thing uh, in 1995. So I bet if if that weren't such a big consideration is like trying to be familiar or trying to be similar to an existing language, that maybe people might explore that space more. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a great point. I mean, I, I will say though, like I think you can give up more of your weirdness budget there than... And people might think. So another thing I, I do have some experience with is is TypeScript. I worked two jobs over the summer the past few years where um, I was working. I've, I worked one where I worked on the Angular web framework. Um, some people may know of this. And another Angular, one, yeah, I think people have heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another time I was working on I was working at Google uh, on an initiative to migrate a bunch of JavaScript code over to TypeScript. But I I think if you look at a language like TypeScript the type system that they have is like pretty powerful and, and novel in the sense that there aren't, as far as I'm aware, there's no other mainstream language with a structurally typed subtyping system like TypeScripts. Now, okay, of course... Yeah, I, are, I, don't, I certainly don't know of any. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't think there are any. <laughs> yeah. There, there are some other smaller languages that are, that are like it that came far before TypeScript, but there's nothing in the mainstream. Sure. And I think like... You can see as how how this has played out. Even though, you know, I don't think the type system is something easy to learn. At least at the limit, like when you're using very powerful constructs in TypeScript, it becomes quite challenging to to explain this to someone who's not already in the know. But right. it's it's very popular in the JavaScript ecosystem, and I think for a good reason, just because it maps very well to the kind of code that people are writing today. So I think there's something there about like. How well does does your system map to like the existing ecosystem and the existing usage patterns you know that that were around in JavaScript, even if you have to design a system that is a little bit weird and unfamiliar to people, like typescript's you know structural subtype you might be, if the usage patterns that it enables line up very well with what's already going on, you know you're likely to succeed. Right. Uh, because people will recognize the that like whatever burden that that they're giving up to learn this feature is, you know, maps well to, you know, the the use cases that they already have. And one thing that's interesting is that it's certainly not that's certainly part of it, but it's also not the only factor because there have been several different initiatives to try and apply a type system to JavaScript. Google had the Closure compiler, which had a, um, a type system that you could add on top of JavaScript using comments. I actually used that at work in like 2011. That was before TypeScript had been released. Even when TypeScript was released, Flow came out after it from Facebook. And right. that was also used by a lot of companies um, until TypeScript pretty decisively sort of ended up winning. <laughs> uh, and, and now it's like pretty clear that that's kind of what everybody who wants that is going to be using. But it's interesting to think about, you know, I think you make a great point that 
it is really important for a system like that to be able to accommodate whatever usage patterns people have already done. Because if you're like, oh, my mind immediately jumps to jQuery, but of course the better example would be React. But like jQuery, there was a time when jQuery was just so ubiquitous in front-end web development that it's like if you wanted to make a type system for JavaScript that couldn't accommodate jQuery, nobody's going to use it. And today yeah. it's, it's probably React rather than, than jQuery, but React isn't as, I don't know, unusual, I guess, as jQuery, or at least it doesn't seem to be to me. Maybe if I were actually working on it, I would <laughs> say something else. But I mean, everybody knew about that, right? That was true of, of TypeScript. That was true of uh, Flow, and it was true of Google Closure Compiler and for whoever else was doing it. I, I do know that something I've heard people say is that Flow was more restrictive than TypeScript. They were more about sort of correctness and trying to make it so that it would catch more problems at compile time but they did have to give up something uh, to get that like there were some things that were like harder to type or or they couldn't type um in existing javascript programs and i'd heard people cite that as a reason that they preferred typescript overflow was that it was less strict which maybe you know if, if you're used to like an elm or a you know <laughs> okay i'm all haskell you know type type checker or rock uh th- th- then you might think uh uh, of course, I, I want something that's more sound. Why would I want less soundness? Uh, but I actually think that's a that's probably a decision that that really worked out in TypeScript's favor compared to those alternatives that were stricter. Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree with that. I, I actually have have a theory for why TypeScript won in this space, and it consists of two pieces. The first is exactly what you're describing. I think TypeScript did a very good job of meeting the JavaScript ecosystem where it was at. You know, unlike things like Dart, it didn't try to change the language too much. As long right. as you were using JavaScript, you could just continue to use TypeScript. Yep. Um, and to your point, you know, it made a lot of these usage patterns that might be unsound, you know, from some from some perspective. It still allowed you to do them. You could just, you know, escape hatch the type system whenever you wanted. And of course, when you're adopting an ecosystem like JavaScript, you need this. But I think the real reason it won out versus something like Flow is just because of the developer experience. Like, yep. you know, at the totally. same time yeah. that, that TypeScript came out, Microsoft launched the language service protocol and like TypeScript was the banner ad for that. And I think that was just like a huge barrier to productivity. And I, you know, now all our editors support like language service protocol. Doesn't matter what you're using. And I think I think that probably wouldn't have existed if TypeScript wasn't the first to do it, or at least it would look pretty different. I agree, like generally with with both of those as like kind of being the two reasons that TypeScript won. But I think the second reason I would be even more specific and say it's really VS Code is the reason that it won. Because I remember before VS Code came out, Atom was like kind of the big open source editor where you can write extensions in JavaScript. A ton of people were using Atom. Like prior to that, it was like Sublime Text was really popular. It'd be really common for me to see presentations where they'd be writing some code and then all of a sudden the like Sublime Text, hey, you should consider registering this and paying for it thing would pop up because um, a lot of people just didn't ever register it. But but then Atom came out and it was free and a lot of people switched to that and it had a lot of the same kind of like features as Sublime Text or like maybe other people use like TextMate before Sublime Text or... or you know, maybe concurrently with it. Sure. But then I remember when VS Code came out, I remember hearing uh, like what its sort of selling points were. And I was like, why would I switch from Atom to this? It's just like, it's also a JavaScript-based, you know, editor. I think Electron, if I remember right, well, of course, yeah. <laughs> Electron was used in Atom. That was where the name came from. <laughs> like you have an Atom and then you have the Electron, which is like kind of yeah, the outer right. shell, right? Yeah. yeah. Nice. Um, so they open sourced that separately from Atom. And VS Code was built on Electron. So I was like, okay, so it's still built on Electron. 
it's got a JavaScript based extension system, but it's like a smaller ecosystem because Atoms has been around longer. Why in the world would I ever switch to this thing? I don't know what other people's reasons were, but I think a very compelling, very early reason is if you wanted to try out typed JavaScript, you could go with whatever flow extension was available for Atom, uh, or you could just immediately start using TypeScript with amazing support for everything that like just worked because TypeScript and VS Code were built at the same time in the same language to be really, really excellent at that. It's yeah. almost like, I mean, JetBrains would make an IDE just for Java. And in a sense, you could say, I mean, since <laughs> VS Code was written in TypeScript and designed to have amazing TypeScript integration out the box on day one, you could look at it as like, it's kind of like IntelliJ IDEA was for Java, just like this is a an IDE built for this one language, but also you can do other things in it too. And it's like designed for those, you know, as, as well. But, um, you know, if you look at it from Microsoft's perspective, it's like, why would you bother? Cause they didn't own GitHub yet. They hadn't, they hadn't acquired them yet. So <laughs> they didn't already have Atom. It's like, why would you from scratch build a new editor? That's so similar to an existing already very popular editor. Unless the answer is because you want to create the best TypeScript experience ever. And the only way to do that is to build the editor from scratch. And I, th- I mean, they did it. <laughs> and I think yeah. like, you're right that the, the user experience, if you're just like, I install my editor and then like, I don't have to fiddle with plugins that like maybe work some of the time and sometimes give me a cryptic error message. And sometimes I have to like restart the, the editor or like, you know, some external process where it eats up a bunch of memory for no reason. And then sometimes I have to like clear out a cache. And instead, it's just like, no, no, it just works. It's just great. And I think uh, TypeScript is like, kind of like, yeah, I mean, why did it win over these other two things? Especially if you consider TypeScript came out of Microsoft and Flow came out of Facebook. And at the time when Flow came out, the main thing that uh, Facebook was known for in the like front-end web world was React, which was you know becoming quite popular. It wasn't like dominant like it is today, but it was it was like a lot of people really liked it. Sure. And Microsoft back then was primarily known for Internet Explorer, which is the bane of every front-end web developer's existence because it was so old and didn't self-update. <laughs> Microsoft did not have a good reputation. So the idea that they would win at JavaScript, of all things, like where, where every, they just have a super negative re- reputation over Facebook, which had a super positive reputation, is just totally ludicrous. Like, how do you explain that other than VS Code? I, I don't think there is an explanation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a little, you know, I think there's some nuance to that. So I think another thing that boosted to TypeScript, I don't know to what degree, but they they did, you know, TypeScript, like if you were using Angular 2 back when, oh, I, I was never really, really involved in how all these web framework stuff play out. But I, I, I kind of yeah. saw this from the sidelines a little bit. But if you were using Angular 2, you had to use TypeScript because right. Angular comes with these, these things called decorators, which aren't supported in JavaScript. Uh, natively, at least they weren't back then. I think there's like some proposal to make it native now. But if you if you wanted to use Angular, you were using decorators, and the only way to use decorators was to go through TypeScript, or at least TypeScript provided yeah. very good support for decorators in in a way that these other compiled JavaScript languages didn't. Now, funny story about that. So I am not directly involved in these communities, but I I know people who are, and I talk to people about this around that time. Two interesting things to note about that. So one is that, as I heard it, um, a lot of people who were on Angular 1 and saw the announcement for Angular 2, I don't think this was because of TypeScript. I think it was because of other changes that they made, didn't want to move. They were like, I don't 
this doesn't sound better yeah. to me. This is like, actually, and also I'm very frustrated that like there's this huge breaking change and like the thing yeah. that I've been using is deprecated. Absolutely. And a lot of them went to Vue.js. But I don't think that was TypeScript related because I also know that separately, TypeScript support became a big thing that was very, very commonly requested in the Vue.js community until they added it in like Vue 3, I think. Yeah, I, I think there's, a, there's an interesting case to be made. Like Angular's adoption for TypeScript, I don't know if it was like how big of a deal it was. I mean, certainly it, it was a, a strong sort of like endorsement in the sense that Google, you know, Angular came out of Google and Google already had their own compiled to uh, JavaScript, like, you know, typed JavaScript type thing. But I guess th- to be fair, although as I understand it, it was extensively used internally at Google and probably still is in some places, uh, like Clojure Compiler, that is. I don't think that Google was like really heavily promoting it as something that they wanted to kind of take over the industry, which I think it was pretty clear that like Microsoft and Facebook both wanted their thing to to be widely used outside of their companies. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Closure compiler is notoriously difficult to integrate outside of Google's internal suite. In fact, they, you know, it was open source for a while, but it stopped because they're, you know, there's there's so much like Google specific functionality bit built into the, the closure compiler that makes it very difficult to integrate outside of Google. I remember, I think the biggest, you know, outside customer of, of the closure compiler was actually, it's this, I think it's like this note making app based in Salt Lake City. I forget what it's called. I really should know this. I have a friend that works there. But any, anyway, yeah, there weren't many, many people using it besides Google internal usage just because it was pretty difficult to to integrate elsewhere. But it, it is yeah. very widely used at Google. Even the TypeScript usage at Google, last I know, you know, you compile a JavaScript and then sh- ship it through the closure compiler. Ah, cool. <laughs> um, yeah, because of course it did like all these optimizations in addition to yeah. uh, type checking uh, optionally. So going back a ways, you mentioned earlier that you, when you got into rock development, there were a lot of sort of like surprises and like things that you didn't know. So I'm guessing these are things that were sort of like had to do with it being a more like it's just like not a toy compiler. It's it's like, you know, designed for real use and like a big code base and super performance critical. Um, so I'm kind of curious what those things were like. What were the things that uh, like having been a hobbyist compiler developer previously um, now that you are getting paid to work on a compiler? Uh, what, what, what things are sort of like, uh, you know, surprising or, or different about that? Sure. Well, I, I will say a lot of it is like very domain specific. Um, you know, I, I worked on, on TypeScript's compiler for some time, which again is like a very different model from rock. I, I oh, used really? to okay. work so, around... so you did have some professional, some professional experience on a compiler. Yeah. But, you know, certainly not to any degree, like like orders of magnitude difference from what I'm doing with Rock. Okay, okay. So this um, is like, you, you had a couple of like commits or something. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, and, and like same thing with Russ. Like I, I lurked around her for a little bit. I think the things you realize though is, I, I think like any software project, there's a lot of like domain specific and yeah, just sort of like domain specific problems that you run into that are very hard to to generalize or like see in in a in a context that's that's not as narrow as the specific needs of, for example, the rock compiler. So you know something that you know you and I both know the woes of of certain certain compilation problems that we have. But you know, for example, dealing with the recursive types and supporting type inference for for the kinds of recursive types that rock has. Is 
is a surprisingly difficult task and right, recursive like, structural types. <laughs> yes, recursive structural types, yeah. exactly. So, like, for example, most of the literature does not consider this problem because if you look at languages in the in the ML family, all of them are nominally typed for the most part, especially when it comes to recursive types. So the yeah. way that you do inference there is is pretty simple. Like if I have a recursive type, the only way I can get I can like hit the point where it recurses. So like for example, let's take let's say I have a tree. A, yeah. a tree has two nodes, each of which can be a tree. If if I'm in a structurally typed language, as you know, as a type checker, I can see where the places of recursion happen because I know that they have to happen wherever you do a, like a match statement. So you have to explicitly say, I'm going to match over the structure of this tree. And if it's recursive, then I'll do something else. So this makes it very easy for the type checker to see like, okay, here's the place of recursion. You know, I can infer, infer exactly where the recursion point is. You, and, you mean an anomaly typed language? An anomaly typed language, yeah. yeah. Okay, so it's actually earlier. It's fine. <laughs> right. Yeah, sorry, yeah. my bad. Yeah. No worries, so, no worries. Okay. Right. So, so most of the literature and most like resources you'll find deal with type inference in a scheme that works well for, for anomaly type structures. In Rock, we don't have this constraint. You know, we have this liberty to assume things will look a certain way, and so you have to find ways to make it work otherwise. And then right. this is one example. I think there are many other examples that you and I and, and others on the team know about. Um, I can't believe lambda sets haven't come up yet. We're we're like so far into the conversation. <laughs> I was like, I was like, how long before can we talk before lambda sets come up? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can get, we can get into that bag of worms too. That's oh, we good. should, yeah. But uh, okay, yeah. So so that's that makes sense. Yeah. So from like a type checking perspective, I think another interesting one is that the way that rock and, and we have you to thank for this is like the way that rock does what OCaml calls polymorphic variants, what we call tag unions. The types for that, I mean, we are, we always had a different type like representation of them that OCaml does. But the one that you came up with, uh, like the modification that you came up with has been, I think, a really big deal. Like, you know, early in the conversation, we were talking about sort of the trade-off between having a type system that is more powerful, but then also potentially more confusing to learn and like harder to learn because there's just like not only more to it and there's more complexity, but also there's like more weird edge cases and more surprising interactions and stuff like that. And the change that you make, so without, uh, for those who aren't familiar, this is like really deep inside baseball. So I'm not going to try and explain the whole thing, but basically it made it so that with a couple of very weird esoteric edge case drawbacks that we kind of considered not to actually be significant drawbacks, um, it meant that we could change the syntax uh, for representing these things. It's like very common structure that comes up all the time in Rock from something that looked a little bit surprising and weird to something that looks kind of like more what you would expect based on the way that it's kind of easiest to teach these things. And since since making that change, I mean, we, we used to get a really common beginner question was people would be like, why is it like this? I don't understand why the syntax would be this. And we, we tried like a bunch of different ways of explaining it to people. Like, like we had like multiple different drafts of like, try explaining it this way, try explaining it that way. How about this way? And everybody's like, yeah, kind of, I, I don't know. I'll just, whatever. And it seemed like eventually they just kind of give up and be like, I don't know, it's weird. I, I don't get it, but I guess I'll just remember that this is how it is and I'll just move on with my life. But since that change, we like I, I think we've only gotten one person asked about the syntax once that I can remember. And he was actually talking about the one place where we actually need that syntax 
And it's like kind of an edge case in the tutorial when you have like a pattern match with an underscore in it. Um, he was like, I don't know about this syntax here. And I was like, that used to be everywhere. <laughs> uh, and, and now it's just like, weird, it's reserved for this weird edge case that like probably will almost never come up for most people. I thought that was a really cool example of like uh, taking all the knowledge that you've gained. Cause like I, first of all, I never would have thought of that. I don't think I would have just kind of assumed that that would have like blown up compiler performance if we tried to do something like that. But like, being able to figure out something that nobody's done, as far as I know, I don't know of any language that's doing exactly this thing in exactly this way. And it was like a really valuable thing for making the language's learning curve lower without making it any less powerful, or at least not in any like case where, you know, anyone cares about the, <laughs> the, the things that we had to like sacrifice. It's just like so random. Like, I, we couldn't even contrive an example of where someone would want to use that functionality. Um, which is yeah, great. I mean, that's a great trade-off if you can find it. <laughs> that's yeah. That's that's definitely true. I I mean, so j- just to concretize the example for anyone that might be listening and maybe a bit lost, uh, the the basic idea. Is, so Rock uses this model called unification for its type checking. Simple example we can take is: imagine I have a function that wants to, you know, it operates over some user role. Let's say I have three roles in my application. I have like a user, an admin, and a, and a super admin. Now, whether this is a good structure or not, this is a separate debate. Sure, let's, but, <laughs> just for example, yeah, yeah. So, so I have these three roles, and I have I have like an, a sum type. So you can think of a union in TypeScript if you're familiar with this, or an enum in some languages, or whatever else. Basically, just it's one of three states, and they're disjoint. So the 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 previous system in Rock, if I wanted to pass a value to this function that takes a user or an admin or a super admin the value that I had to provide it would have to be explicitly of the type that is named user or admin or super admin. I couldn't pass it a value that was named the type user or named the type user or admin or named the type, for example, admin or super admin, right? So it couldn't be any subset of those those three things. It had to be exactly the combination of those three things. And you can, you can understand how this might be very unintuitive. Like I think most of the time when we work in languages, like TypeScript, for example, or if you're familiar with object-oriented programming, you know, you know that like any dog is an animal. Why does my <laughs> animal need to be exactly an animal? Why can't I pass it a dog, right? These kinds of questions come up. And so people found it very frustrating because they, they would have, for example, a user or an admin, but they couldn't treat that user or an admin as a user or an admin or a super admin. And so, so yeah, we, we found a way to, like, we're not using subtyping exactly in Rock. We can't do this for certain reasons, but, you know, quote unquote. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we found a way to emulate it so we can do exactly what Rich described. So in most cases now, you can pretend as if you have a user or an admin and you can pass it into a place that expects a user or an admin or a super admin, and things will just work out without you having to worry about this underlying restriction that Rock has that says things have to be exactly the same. They can't just be a subset. And the critical thing, I think, is that syntactically, it looks like you would expect. It looks like it's subtyping. It looks like it's like you're, you have a, subte- a subset. And there's actually one other important implication of that, which is that previously, if you said, like, uh, I, I want to have, I, I've got uh, three colors, red, green, and blue. That's like, those are my three options in my enum. And you say X equals red. The inferred type of X would not be 
a union consisting of just red. It would be a union consisting of just red with an asterisk. And the asterisk means also there could be other stuff in here. People are like, what, what's the asterisk about? Why is there an asterisk there? And you have to go on this long explanation about like, well, it's because of the type system and they like that all these reasons and like, you know, and, and, but now there's just no asterisk. And so people don't ask about it. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's just like kind of, it's like, oh, okay, that's it. Yeah, it's a tag union with one thing in it. Got it. That totally makes sense. I, I've heard, so this is a thing that I know Evan takes into consideration a lot when designing Elm is like, when you're thinking about a language feature, not just thinking about like what's it capable of and like what are the programs people can write with it, but also like how are you going to teach it and like how, it, you know, how easy is it going to be to learn? And I think because of this, there's two things are true. One is that Elm has a well-deserved reputation for being a language that's easy to learn. And I very much want Rock to be the same way, but also that I've heard people <laughs> I'm going to say accuse, like accuse Elm of being a language that's quote for beginners. In other words, that it's designed to be like, uh, like scratch or something like a language that's like for learning as opposed to like, even though it's used by like, you know, multiple very, uh, large code bases in like, you know, yeah, like medium sized companies, not, not no like huge companies, but like, you know, at least one company with a billion dollar plus valuation. So it's like clearly not a, just a toy language, but oftentimes when people are saying, I wish that this language would add this type system feature or this like language feature that's like, you know, more powerful, but has trade-offs, one of which is that it would make the language harder to learn. People kind of like seize on that. And they're like, oh, they won't add this because they're too precious about making the language, you know, uh, easy to learn. And so this language is for beginners, et cetera. That's like a pet peeve I have is when people argue in that forum because like well no it's also that like this would add a lot of complexity and like there's more like when you make the type system harder to learn there can be multiple reasons for that in this case it was previously harder to learn without really any corresponding like significant benefit um but other times it's like you know higher kind of types come to mind it's like that makes the type system more complicated and especially the ecosystem more complicated but like one of several downsides is that uh, is that the learning curve of the language and especially the ecosystem gets higher. But like those are reasonable trade-offs. And so you can say one language should have higher kind of types than another language shouldn't. But it always like is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine when people just jump straight to the like, ah, this language is for babies. That's that's why they're not adding this, you know, this language, but they're not serious. They need to like be more macho like me and, you know, uh, add all the language features because that's how you make the best language. <laughs> It's it's certainly a trade-off, you know, like and it, it, it's a difficult trade-off to make. Like, you know, like like any other thing in the world, frankly, like it programming language is an abstraction, right? And so you have to fit enough things in the surface of the abstraction that it's like it's pleasant to use while producing some optimal output by some metric of optimal. I, d- I don't mean like optimal yeah. in, in performance or something, but maybe optimal in like this is friendly to use but produces like not terrible code underneath underneath as totally. well. Yeah. And, and that's, it, that's a really hard line. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think in general, it's just like a hard problem overall. You know, like I think you can look at businesses where like, you know, the, the business needs to make money. And so they're like, okay, engineering team, go and do this. But this in itself is also an abstraction, and a lot gets lost under that line. Um, and you have all kinds of inefficiencies. And I think the same is true in programming languages. Like, you know, I, in, in Rock, for example, there are certain things, like, you know, like, for example, with the example we were just talking about, there are certain edge cases that you just can't do with the abstraction that we've now given you, even though right. it generally works. And yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. It's, it's definitely very challenging. 
to find the right balance there. And there's there's definitely not like an absolute answer by any means. Right. And like for for those who are wondering, the like weird edge case that we're talking about is like you no longer have the ability to say, I am returning like just red or green or blue from this function. And in the future, nobody can use that as like red or green or blue and yellow. Like you can never add anything more to that set. It's like permanently fixed as like those those three options and that's it no matter how you choose to use it in the future i don't know why we couldn't come up with an example of why that would be like a good thing to be able to say but you used to be able to say it and now you can't and i don't lose any sleep over that <laughs> okay so i i think uh you you did no i i did i i mentioned lambda sets i'm, I'm the one who brought it up but we, we should talk about lambda sets because this is something that i don't think anybody anticipated was going to be a as big of a selling point for the language or be as big of a pain in terms of like implementing things and like getting them to work properly in the compiler. And it's, it's interesting in that in both cases, this is something that is completely invisible to people using rock. Like nobody using rock has any idea that Lambda sets exist unless they work on the compiler or are hearing this podcast. Um, and yet it's like this huge deal to, to anyone, especially working on like type system or code generation in the compiler. So yeah, like what, so first of all, I think, um, I don't remember, did Lambda sets exist when you got involved in the compiler or was that something that was added afterwards? I don't remember the chronology there. I think they did exist when I, when okay. I joined you guys. Yeah. Yeah, so the background here is that um, when, oh, of course, yeah, because this, this sort of had to exist in order to still have like functions work on a basic level. But uh, so uh, you have functions in Rock. They are lexical closures, like they are in most languages that have first class functions. Um, pretty much all of them by now, I guess. And basically, when you're closing over something or you're capturing it uh, in a closure, uh, you need some place to store the information of like what was captured. Like that has to exist in memory somewhere, and it has to follow the the value around that you're passing around. Now, in a lot of languages, because that uh, value can be sort of uh, dynamic depending on the application that you're doing. Like in one code path, you might be capturing this thing, and then like you pass that. Uh, closure to uh, some function and then another case you might pass uh, a different closure to that same function uh, which has the same type but which captures something different like it's potentially something like a lot more or a lot less information than the other code path um, so this means that functions which accept closures or which functions which accept other functions for example need to be able to accept closures that capture different sizes of things now in a lot of languages the way that people do this is they just do a heap allocation which is uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, kind of expensive or, or can be certainly as far as like runtime performance goes. Uh, and so they'll just say, yeah, all of our closures do a heap allocation every time you instantiate one. And then that's, you know, that's where we store the captured thing. It can be whatever size. We'll store what the size is and then just, you know, pass it along and then it'll get used wherever and it's fine. However, uh, we found out, I think this is another thing that we uh, learned from William Brandon was he had he had a, a recommendation. He, he's a one of the authors, of, I guess the lead author of uh, the Morphic uh, system that we also use for like things like uh, in-place mutation detection at compile time. And like uh, I think also lighting some reference counts at compile time maybe. But basically he, he pointed out that there's a system that you can use uh, called defunctionalization for getting rid of these uh, heap allocations and basically making it so that much like most of the rest of the language, you can avoid heap allocations altogether and just pass your functions around. And because we're a monomorphizing compiler, uh, we can make it so that however many different times you call the same function passing closures of different sized captures to it, we just generate a specialization for each of those functions that accepts 
uh that uh you know now that i'm explaining all this i'm realizing oh yeah this is quite complicated even to explain so maybe it's <laughs> maybe it should have been less of a surprise that it was that uh that this ended up having so many uh surprising implications for the compiler but the upshot of it is what we get out the other side is that using especially like higher order functions and stuff like that avoids heap allocations which in a purely functional language happens a lot like this comes up all the time and the fact that we're not having to do any heap allocations for any of our closures unless they're already sorted some data structure that's on the heap of course um, but not additional uh, heap allocations for our closures saves us a huge number of heap allocations which for a language like rock that really cares about performance is a big deal like as far as i know the only languages that uh do this that that have uh stack allocated closures are basically like systems level languages like c plus uh rust they both do it um i don't even think milton does it which is like the sort of the banner like high performance uh ML family language. Do you know if it does? Milton does it, but it does it really? as it's done as an optimization. So most languages that perform decolonialization, ah, okay. they they do it as an optimization that's not guaranteed. The upside in Rock is that defunctionalization is an optimization that's guaranteed. You will never right. have a boxed closure, um, except for certain cases where it must be. But like, yeah, in the cases where you could reduce it to something that would be straight line code without any heap allocation. Rock guarantees that that reduction will be made. Whereas in languages like OCaml and Haskell and Hamilton and any of these other kinds of functional languages that run into the same problems with, with closures, um, do a defunctionalization as an optimization pass after most other things are done. And they do not promise that all your closures will, will not be heap allocated. Right. And we do let you opt into it if you want to. Like there is a box type that you can do to like wrap them up if you if you want that. And there are reasons that in some scenarios you actually do want that. Uh, and it's like better for performance. But uh, the default is that you don't want it. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So that's the feature. It's cool. It, it also means things like, and we haven't been able to run benchmarks on this yet, but uh, it certainly seems like we should be competitive if not like approximately the same as, but like it should mean that our async implementations should be, in theory, about as fast as Rust's, which is really cool because Rust's are, uh, first of all, like quite complicated and bespoke and and uh, like baked into the compiler, whereas ours are just sort of like, oh, this just falls out of the fact that we have defunctionalized closures like this. But Rust's are supposed to be uh, designed to be so efficient that you couldn't do better than them if you if you hand wrote your async implementation instead of using Rust's async keyword. So it'll be cool to benchmark that once we get all that working. But um, that really kind of falls out of this like defunctionalization uh, like everywhere and, and sort of like eagerly. But anyway, the reason this came up was in the context of things that turned out to be surprisingly hard in the compiler. <laughs> so I think you've done more work on this than anyone else. Uh, what, what are some of the things that, that sort of turned out to be surprisingly hard about this or the implications of it? Sure. I, just really quickly, I'll, I'll plug a couple of resources for people that might want to learn a little bit more about defunctionalization. If you just search defunctionalization space ACM on your favorite search engine, uh, you'll probably come across an article called, uh, I believe it's like defunctionalization, everyone does it, no one talks about it, which talks <laughs> about like some very interesting implications of defunctionalization, not just from like a programming language implementation point of view, but how you might apply it to something like a distributed system or a web framework or something like this. People might find this interesting. And really quickly, if you're, if you're wondering what the difference is between how, Ru how Rock does this and how something like 
Rust or C++? Do you like those? In Rust and C++, there's a very significant restriction in that you cannot have two different lambdas tied to the same variable without heap allocating at least one of them, or sorry, heap allocating both of them. So for example, I could not, you know, define some function foo, you know, whose value comes from like an if statement that gives me two different functions in there, Uh, neither Rust or C++. I have to either not do this conditionally, or I have to keep allocate both of them. Rock does not have this restriction just because of how closures in Rock are implemented versus how they are implemented in, in, in Rust and C++. And, and also, that was a really important design constraint in the sense that like they have to feel like normal closures in a functional language. You have to be able to do all the normal closure stuff with them or else it's like, what is this language? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They are very tricky in practice. And so I, I guess I'll give a quick, a brief overview. The way that we, that we guarantee that defunctionalization will happen, because this might seem a bit surprising. How do we guarantee this? The way that it's guaranteed is we track information about what functions a value might be very early on in the program. So in fact, every single function you use in Rock has an implicit implicit in its type is information about what that function value um, dispatches to. Yeah, Yeah, and what it captures. And and that's behind it. So that's not visible in the type system. It's like secret metadata that's tracked by the compiler in the like type checking phase, but it's never syntactically visible. You have no idea it's there as as a rock developer. Yeah. So what this means is, for example, let's say I define some function or I want to I want to bind to some variable for operation, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make its value an if conditional, and the you know one branch of the if conditional will be a function that multiplies two numbers together. Let's call this mol. Another branch of this if conditional will be a function that adds two numbers together. Let's call this add. So, in most languages. What would happen is the type of op, as it was seen by the compiler, would, would say, okay, this is some function. I'm not going to tell you exactly what function it is, but it's a function that takes two numbers and it gives you a number back. Right. Rock, it's a little bit more involved. It says, this is a function of two numbers that returns a number. And moreover, it's exactly one of these two functions. It's either the function ball or it's the function add. And right. it could be no more than that. And it's definitely at least one of those two. And the way that that we then compile this and enforce defunctionalization is whenever you do a function call to op, it's enough for us to look at the set of functions that we stored along with the, along with the type, and we say, okay, I know this is either a function call to mull or a function call to add. Let's let's check a bit that's stored on the value that tells us exactly what function it actually is. Switch on that bit and then call the function that that we need to, rather than chasing pointers on the heap and, right. and most, most languages would do this as a function pointer it's like it's it's actually storing instead of storing like it's one of these x different alternatives it's just like here's a pointer and there's a function behind that pointer and i'm gonna call whatever's there which actually turns out i forgot about this it's actually an even more often an additional optimization benefit is that if you give llvm a function pointer it doesn't really know how to optimize that well not nearly as well as it knows how to optimize like oh this is one of these several alternatives and then each of these alternatives calls a function, it's a lot better able to say, oh, I see that 
in this particular case, it's always going to be one of these alternatives, like after inlining or something like that. So I can just eliminate the other branches and just save you the branch and just make it become a direct function call. As opposed to if you make it be a function pointer, in a lot of cases, LLVM has to be more conservative and say like, well, I don't know, somebody could have mutated that memory and now I can't safely assume that like there's still this exact function there. So I, I'm not going to you know, optimize this and do further inlining and stuff like that. So it, it turns out to be not only is that representation let us do these cool things that we just talked about, but as a side benefit bonus, it also is even better for like LLVM optimizations. Yeah, it does make optimizations a lot a lot easier or enable mo- more of them. As a slight tangent, there's another interesting thing here. I, I wrote a blog post about, I wrote like a small language that includes guaranteed defunctionalization. And I wrote a blog post about it recently. And I was, as I was writing it, I realized like there's there's another specific case that you might be interested in, which is let's say I have this switch statement versus I have I need to go chase this function pointer and figure out where it resolves to. Let's say I didn't optimize either of those. Now, when your code is is running, if you're not familiar, most of most CPUs have these things called branch predictors, which uh, yes. decide what branch do I think this thing is gonna, you know, this the switch is gonna jump to Additional, next. yeah. So in, in the case of this defunctionalization where we, where we compile your function call to a switch statement that, didn't, that then dispatches, we have the, the CPU branch predictor in play. If the branch predictor performs well, you know, it'll guess the right branch and, and now we move on. Now, in the function pointer case, there is something very similar to a branch predictor, but it's, it's very subtly different. It's called, uh, I think it's called a branch target predictor or something like this. It's not the same thing as a branch predictor because it doesn't predict like where I'm going to jump to. It predicts like where is this call going to end up at. Um, uh-huh. And CPUs have both of these things. So an interesting question you might want to ask is like, okay, what is the relative eff- efficacy of both of these things? Like what is faster? The branch right. predictor deciding where I'm going to jump to or the, the branch target predictor deciding like where my function call is going to go? And I couldn't find a good answer. I, I guess no one has looked <laughs> into this, but <laughs> if, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, that might be a fun, fun question to try to answer. Yeah, if anyone listening to this knows, please let us know. Like, tweet at me or something. Uh, <laughs> or yeah. tweet at software, uh, SW un- underscore unscripted on Twitter. So this is like, it, it turned out to be a deep rabbit hole. So, okay, but that's just like what it is. We haven't even talked yeah, about okay. like what's, okay, what's hard yeah, about yeah. it. <laughs> I, I guess we should get to that. <laughs> not just yeah. keep these tangents. Right, okay, so the, so... As I described, we represent these things in the type system. And what might not be immediately obvious is that lambda sets from a from a type theoretic perspective, from like the role that they play in the type system, they behave not unlike structurally typed polymorphic variants. So and, and what this means in particular is that lambda sets can also be recursive. So they are structurally typed some types that can also be recursive. If you remember earlier on, I described, well, you know, yeah. trying to infer recursion <laughs> for structural types is, <laughs> is not easy at all. Yep. So you have to do this twice. You can't just do it once for your polymorphic variants in your language that your users can, can type and have a good time with. You also have to do it for lambda sets. And you can't right. do them exactly the same because there are some, some subtle differences that... Right, it's not like you can just completely reuse the code. Like, yeah. Exactly. So this is one thing. You have to design a good system of type inference around it. It's 
it's not very easy. I'll tell you from yeah. experience. <laughs> Another thing that that happens is these things are very, very pervasive in in a specific way. Perhaps we can we can use the following example. Okay, suppose I have a function that takes in another function. Uh, let's call this this function that takes in as a parameter f, and it returns a function that takes a number and calls f like with that number. Okay. Okay, so like, I guess as code, you can think of it as like, fun foo takes f and it returns fun g, g takes an x and then calls, calls f of x. Okay. So if I'm a compiler and I look at this function normally, let's say I'm not, let's say I don't do lambda sets or anything like this. So I have, let, let's say we're dealing with ints here. So function foo is a function that, that takes a function that goes from an int to an int and returns me a function that goes from an int to an int. Okay, very good. This is, this is pretty easy, right? Like nothing, nothing too complicated here. If you use lambda sets, your functions can grow exponentially large because the function g that I return from foo has to embed the type information of the function f that it captures, right? Because remember, we, we mentioned that we're, we're storing information about what types of function capture, or sorry, what values of function captures and their types in the function type itself. So function foo takes a function uh, named, you know, from int to int, but I know concretely that this function is only ever going to be f, and it returns to me a function g, which I know is from int to int, and its lambda set is exactly the function g, but also inside of that lambda set, we have to store information about the type of the function f that g captures. Right. So now we have we have two layers in like like two layers in our type you can almost think of. You have this function g from int to int, but inside of g, you also have to store this information that f is a function that goes from an int to int. And so every right. time you capture a every time you capture a function in this way, your types grow larger and larger. It creates a dependency between the two the two functions. Exactly. Well, fortunately, for, in functional programming languages, it never really happens that you pass a function to another function. So this is yeah. not going to ever come <laughs> up. So it's not a big deal. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. So, you know, <laughs> the, the, the real tricky bit is that in a, in a programming language like Rock, which is purely functional, the way that all, the way that you express all your effects is you say, okay, please go perform this effect for me and then call this function after you do that effect. And that function that you call after you do that, you do that effect, it might have many more of these kind of nested effects in it. Right. And this is exactly the pathological case that I just described. It's a function that's capturing many other functions um, that happen after you do an effectual computation. And right, like you can imagine continuations. Right, the, the traditional like uh, callback, you know, pyramid of doom, where you have like a bunch of nested callbacks. It's like. Behind the scenes, we have that. Now we have syntax sugar, so it doesn't look like that. But under the hood, like from the type system's perspective, that is actually what's going on. And so the type checker has to deal with that. Yeah. And yeah, and usually this is not a problem in other languages because you don't preserve this information. You just toss it away and say, okay, I'm just going to like, I know that this thing right, exists, but I'm not going to care about what it is. Yeah. But in our case, yeah, you have to care about it. On the heap. Yeah. Right. But of course, this is another example of why it's so valuable to 
not have heap allocated closures is because you don't want to have an extra heap allocation per step. You know, every like single IO operation you do has to come with a bonus heap allocation stapled to it. You don't want that. Yes, absolutely. So it turns out that with with the model, like the way that Rock's type system is implemented, this huge, you know, dependency tree of functions that you might build up isn't actually a big deal. I'm not going to try to go into detail on why this is, but <laughs> this is actually this is actually one reason that Rock like can't work immediately out of the box with something like subtyping. This is why we need this thing where like an ABC has to be exactly an ABC, right, 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 yeah. or whatever. Why we need type unification rather than the subtyping, right? So maybe that gives you a little bit of a of a hint to what this is all about. But this does like we found out that there are later stages in our compiler where we actually like go to a compiler code and not just type check it, where this starts to become very painful. Yes. Because the... Well, very slow. <laughs> very slow, yes. The basic problem is that in, in an earlier version of, of how we designed the compiler, we assumed that the types in general would be pretty small, and so we didn't try to share Lambda sets like when they could be shared. So you can imagine right. in this giant dependency graph, there's probably a lot of duplication. And in practice, there is. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, nested callbacks, it's like <laughs> the deeper the callback yeah. chain just gets, one the, more, the more duplication yeah. there is. Yeah, it's, it's like all the ones before this callback plus, you know, this one. <laughs> exactly. So in, in our code generator, reasons that we had to, right, like for one, LLVM, which is one of the code generation backends that we target, doesn't have this idea of like sharing types in a meaningful way. So right. we couldn't we couldn't just preserve the type sharing system we had before. And so you would have to unroll this this whole chain of shared types into something that, that was individually owned at each place. And you can imagine just even in the simple nested case, this quickly becomes exponential, right? Because like yeah. if I have I, at my lowest level, I have to create one one copy of this thing. And then every other layer has to have its own copy of that of that you know deepest layer. So this yeah, you know, it quickly becomes quadratic and not a lot of fun. So we had to. I spent a lot of time like trying to understand why this was and what was going on and how to solve this. So now we use a system where uh, we intern, which is a fancy way of saying we try to be smart about making sure that the the compiled values that we generate are actually shared between all of those, all of those layers, um, and that happened to get rid of a lot of the overhead. So that that's like one thing that's worked out well, and we're pretty happy about. But there are other things in in different in various layers of the compiler that that still make lambda sets quite tricky. And I, I can jump jump into the big one, but I don't, I don't, sure. I don't know if you want to jump in before that, Richard. Well, we 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 can we can chat about that one. That's like probably a good stopping point. Is like we'll, we'll talk about that one. Um, okay. Well, wait, just just real quick. So, so you're saying this didn't come up in toy languages? That's weird. I would have thought that uh, surely. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So yeah, let's talk about yeah. let's talk about the big the big uh, the big part where lambda sets are really uh, even more troublesome than they are in in the case that you already solved. <laughs> yeah. So. So this other case, I'll pretend and say, I think we have something that works. I don't know how long it'll keep working, but for now it does, so we'll see how it goes. <laughs> right. Um, well, once someone writes a sufficiently large rock application, then we'll find out right. for real. Yeah. No, I mean, th these are exactly like the sort of domain-specific problems that you only run into like once you actually sit down and look at the thing, right? Like, right. In, yeah, I mean, in, we... in general, 
you're not going to run into I mean, this at we all. didn't find out about that problem you just talked through until I think it was maybe advent of code, like two advent of codes ago or something like that. Like when, when people actually started writing like significantly long callback chains, I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, this does get out of hand pretty quickly. We should, yeah. we should do something other than what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, so the big kahuna is the following. So Rock also supports a feature called abilities. Abilities are very similar to type classes or traits or concepts if you're familiar with them for C++. If you only know about object-oriented programming, like you can you can kind of think, think of them as about the same as interfaces in Java or Go. Anyway, think, the idea... Uh, before any Haskellers get too excited, I should point out that unlike type classes in Haskell, uh, these are not higher kinded. <laughs> so you cannot make a monad uh, ability. That, that wouldn't work. Uh, I mean, you could try. It just would not... It wouldn't be, actually be a monad. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, okay, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So... In in isolation, Rock's abilities are, are are quite simple as a model of type classes. Like forget about lambda sets, and it's very easy to implement a model of abilities. Like, okay, you have to do a little bit of work, but it's not tricky. By you know, if you're if you're familiar with the, what's already there, and you're willing to like go read sources of other people and just cite literature for a couple of weeks, you'll be able to do it. It's not a problem at all. Which is exactly what I did. I was like, okay, you know, this is pretty easy. I'm having a great time. And then once you bring in Lambda sets into the picture, like things kind of go out the window. And the reason I should <laughs> I, I say this is because, like, again, we don't we don't really know of anyone else who's doing this who has right. a system that includes something like Lambda sets in their type system. <laughs> and the curse of novelty a, is that you can't just do what everybody else is doing. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly the problem, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so to briefly describe what the problem is, maybe a good precursor is to see lambda sets as like a very weak form of dependent types. Now, ooh, scary, right? No, it's not that yeah. scary. The, the reason I say this is because lambda sets like don't exist in isolation in their own little world of types, right? Like they're intrinsically linked to the values that you have in your program. A lambda set type has information about like the exact values that, that live in a rock program. And you can't just abstract that layer away from the semantics of the program itself in a way that you can do for types, right? For example, like if I have an int, like, yes, I can say that my number X is an int, but like they exist on two different planes. You know, I, I can look at the value X and I can look at that it's an int in, in isolation. I don't have to like, you know, mirror them together. But lambda sets, it's not the case because each lambda set consists of values. In that way, it's dependently, it's dependent on the values of your program. This causes some, some problems for implementing something like, like abilities or type classes because most of the time when you implement type classes, like you only care about them on the level of types. Like you do care about them a little bit more than that because, you know, let's say I have, you know, I have some type class called add. It defines like an add for two numbers. Well, what do I do if I see like, if I see some variable x plus x, I say, okay, what is, what is the type of x? Uh, let me go look up the definition of add for that x and plug that back in. 
So that's like about where the value dependency stops. And the rest of it is just like filling in the types. This is all well and good. With Lambda sets, you don't have this luxury because you can have the following case. You can again say something like, okay, I'm gonna find a, I'm gonna define a function foo. Okay, well, let me let me put it this way. I have I have an ability, uh, let's call it evil. Evil ability consists of a function called f. f takes in the type that the ability is defined for, and it gives me back another function that we'll say it goes from an int to an int. Maybe it adds two ints or something. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Okay, so now let's say I have like some function main. Main is going to take in some value that implements my evil ability, call f on that value, and give me a function back. Here's where it starts to get really tricky. That function from main that's returned like depends on exactly what evil was implemented to be for that type that I pass in. But that function can escape very far away, right? So I can I can call main with like, I don't know, let, let's, let's imagine I have objects O and P, and I implement evil for O and P, I can call main with O and P and, and get two different functions. And those functions mm -hmm. can be used very, very far away in my playground, right? In a language without lambda sets, you don't have to care about what those functions end up being. You right. only need to know like their input and output types, and you're good to go. With lambda sets, you also have to know, okay, well, what does that function actually resolve to, right? Yep. And if I, if I toss that function <clears throat> or, or far away... Or what might it resolve to? Right. What might it yeah. resolve to? And if I f toss that function far away, and I don't preserve like some kind of link back to, oh, this is like the function that this might resolve to comes from uh, like this, this, this variable that was passed to main and its implementation of the evil ability. Uh, if you don't preserve this, this like whole dependency chain, then you quickly end up in a situation where like you just can't make any progress because you, you just don't know what, what this function that, that you toss far away to might resolve with too. So this is yeah. the problem that, that we face and we have a design that, that I think works for the most part, whether it will hold up over time and is actually correct in, in a very rigorous sense. We don't know. So like one of the yeah. tricky bits about <laughs> working on a language like Rock is like Rock is not a research project. And even though we have some some of these kinds of problems that might feel like a research product, we don't project, we don't have a team with the expertise or time to sit down and and like really crush crush down crush out all the details and prove very strong semantic properties about these things. So we're able to prove like small, weak semantic properties about something like the implementation that we have for abilities currently that we can say roughly, okay, if the following conditions hold, then we think it'll work over time. But we don't, you know, we're not we're not here like writing papers and and doing anything too right. rigorous. So yeah, and I, I yeah. think this is like, you know, it's it's an interesting um, example of like, you know, when you're in uncharted territory and you don't know, like you can't just look and say, oh, I'll just do what, you know, this other language does. There's definitely like a couple of different ways you can go about it. One is you can be like, all right, cool. Let's get some 
PhD students working on proving that like this or that solution will work and have these asymptotic properties. Or you can say, we're going to try something. And uh, like we have something that works for now, but we don't know if it'll work on much larger programs because those don't exist yet. And if those larger programs, you know, hopefully will exist <laughs> as people write more and more rock code, um, then we'll have more data on which to base a future design. Like we can say, oh, I see that this, much like we we had with the, the previous Lambda set issue, like, oh, now we have some concrete use cases and like some benchmarks and we can like actually see what the compiler is literally doing on these examples. What are the problems that's running into? And I think especially with performance stuff, honestly, I kind of prefer that approach because it's very easy to end up with a design that in theory has great asymptotics, but then it turns out, you know, ah, memory's complicated and cache invalidation's a thing, like, like, you know, cache lines and so forth. Like, there's all these different factors that come up in practice that are, like, really difficult to account for, I think, uh, in the, like, theoretical planning stage. And so just having something concrete to chew on and, like, seeing a concrete performance problem in a flame graph um, and being able to try and solve it and, like, benchmark it again afterwards and be like, cool, now it's fast. Uh, that I don't know. That makes me feel more comfortable in general. But I don't know. Maybe when it comes to... Uh, certainly that approach doesn't work for everything. Like, when it comes to, like, type theory and, like, correctness, that's a different story. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's like a lot of it is who your users are and what you're targeting. I think, you know, for a language like Rock that cares about being general purpose and seeing a good amount of adoption by some metric, a good amount. Yeah. What matters the most is like getting it in front of people and having people use it. It doesn't right. matter. Soundness matters, but it doesn't matter like at, at the limit, right? If, if there's a very specific edge case that in practice no one runs into, it's not really a goal of the language design to solve that necessarily. Now, you know, if you're working in mathematics, like it's a different story because if you have any place of unsoundness, then your whole, your whole world falls apart. But in software engineering, that's not the case. Like if your language can't do certain things, that doesn't mean that like your product that you're building with your language can't work. Um, yeah, no, that's true. But there is a certain peace of mind that comes from being like, okay, we don't know of any soundness issues anywhere, which you know I, I think is is a goal worth pursuing. But I mean, but at the end of the day, like you're right. I mean, if it's like in order to break the soundness of the type system, if you hypothetically had to like, you know, do these like weird contortions, write code that no one would ever like think to write or even accidentally write, then like how big of a deal is that? Okay, probably not that big of a deal. But just knowing that someone could use that as like an exploit to like make a package that lied about types and caused like compiler problems, I still wouldn't want that to be possible, uh, <laughs> if, if at all possible. So. Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree with you. I, I think I, I meant to say more along the lines of, I think we're okay with not knowing all the answers at this stage. Definitely, yeah. Like, right. I mean, like this is this is you know, it's a language that's like more of a product than like an academic you know exercise. It's like really the the most important thing is like what's the actual user experience. And so far, I think I think we've done a good job. And I think uh, you know, you know, I have I have you to thank for a lot of that and like your hard work on making a lot of this stuff work. So, thanks, I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a good time. If you if you're not already using Rock, try it out. Yeah, definitely. And, and also, if, if this discussion, you know, made your brain leak out your ears, don't worry, you know, uh, that's, that's why we're doing this hard stuff. So you don't have to. But also, if it was like, oh, this is really cool. I'd like to get involved in that. Uh, we also love getting new contributors involved. So <laughs> uh, even if you're like brand new to compiler development. So awesome. Wow, this is a uh, this is a long one. And I, I really enjoyed all the stuff we talked about. So uh, 
yeah, th- thanks for taking the time, I guess. Yeah, thanks for having me, Richard. It's easy. It's a great time. And uh, yeah, just to add on to what Richard said, if, if you're interested in this kind of stuff in general and you just want to talk to someone who is interested in types and stuff around that, feel free to shoot me an email. Um, I, I don't know how you do your distribution, Richard, but maybe you can put my email in the description. Sure. Yeah, or, or just like hop on Rockzilla and just like mention, you know, message Ayaz or me or, or just yeah. chat it up. All right. Thanks so much. For sure. 